The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Pioneering Precision Medicine in Bladder Cancer, Multidisciplinary Perspectives on Personalizing Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XJV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for coming in today. Uh, welcome to the SUL. Welcome to this presentation from Peerview Live. I'm Neil Shore. I have a great privilege of having wonderful faculty. See Adonisman, Guru Sampavde. Um, we have a lot of folks uh, attending virtually. Uh, look forward to this being interactive as much as possible. Our title here, Pioneering Precision Medicine in Bladder Cancer, Multi-D Perspective on Personalizing Patient Care. And I thought to myself, there's a lot of P's in this. But this is bladder cancer, right? So next time we're going to have to add some bees into it. <laughs> but I still like the alliteration. And what's particularly interesting is, you know, the embarrassment of riches we now have in bladder cancer. Uh, and so we're catching up with many other solid tumors now. So again, it speaks to the importance of multidisciplinary care. I'm Neil Shore. Welcome. Thank you for attending. Uh, what are our goals today? Uh, I've already sort of stated, you know, it's all about personalizing uh, this notion around urothelial cancer. We're not going to get have time for upper tract. That's important. We're really going to spend most of it on, on bladder cancer today. Really going through the entire spectrum in, in this hour from NMIBC to muscle invasive, bladder sparing, and, and metastatic. And it's just overwhelming in some ways, but really great, the advances that we have. Uh, I personally think if you're a fellow right now or you're early in your career, this is the absolute antidote to any considerations of burnout. If you can't get excited about the things that are happening right now, uh, it, it, it just doesn't, it's not a, it's just a wonderful time. So we're going to review uh, all the different issues. Um, here's a, a, you know, a quick overview going from NMIBC, the high risk, the TAG3s, CIS, T1s. You know, are you doing your, your resections appropriately? What are you doing to think about that? And then, of course, we'll go through very, very nicely. Uh, Doctors uh, Donishman and Sampav, they are going to review uh, from muscle invasive, neoadjuvant, bladder sparing, and for our patients with locally advanced and metastatic, what are all the new things that are out there? And there's a lot. So we have unmet needs. Um, this reviews them from underutilization to overutilization of intravesical therapies, BCG shortages, uh, and new, new therapies that are available to combat that. Um, you know, it's sort of like overtreatment, undertreatment. We want it just right. It's sort of that Goldilocks phenomenon. So uh, we have to do it in a multidisciplinary way, and that's the importance of this slide. And, and you can read through this. There's so many great uh, approvals, FDA, EMA, globally, it really does require now a team-based approach. But we're here at SUO, and uh, as a uro-oncologist, I think uro-oncology needs to be, you know, front and center working with our uh, other specialists. Uh, I mentioned Beacon here. It's a really trusted resource. Take advantage of this. This is great information for your patients. Uh, you can download the QR code, super helpful. So with that, let me uh, uh, toss it over to uh, Dr. Danishman. Great, thank you so much, Neil. Um, so as Neil said, there's a lot happening in uh, urothelial carcinoma these days, and uh, we're gonna go through a whirlwind of uh, all the latest developments. Again, the, the details of the slides, I won't get time to get into, but uh, all the slides will be available to you uh, later. So. Uh, we're going to start right out and um, talk about uh, Keynote 57. This was a pembromonotherapy for BCG unresponsive disease. This is the typical high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and this was uh, an FDA-approved uh, medication in, in January 2020. Uh, you can see the best response rate with a complete response uh, of 39%. However, you see that um, the curve sort of tailing at, uh, at the end, um, uh, the response rates over uh, uh, prolonged period of time, 18 months to 24 months, really drops down considerably. Uh, so even though we're happy to have this uh, in our armamentarium of treating patients, uh, we still need uh, further uh, therapies. 
So what's next? A lot of activity in this uh, space. We have the uh, Phase 3 Potomac trial. These are large trials and the Keynote uh, 676, uh, both over 1,000 patients. Uh, the Potomac is a BCG induction plus dorvalumab. Uh, uh, and then uh, comparing that to BCG induction uh, with maintenance plus dorva and BCG induction plus maintenance. So really try to see whether the addition of... Uh, um, a checkpoint inhibitor improves the efficacy of, of BCG. And then Keynote uh, uh, 676 is another phase three is basically just adding Pembro uh, to BCG. So we're going to um, have results of BCG plus checkpoint to see if that we can actually improve uh, on the results uh, of um, uh, BCG for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, what about um, phase one, twos? ADAPT is uh, also in this space, BCGN responsive high risk non muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and you can see the various cohorts there. Again, uh, comparing Durva monotherapy, Durva plus BCG, uh, putting in external beam radiation therapy in there as well, uh, versus uh, Durva plus Gemdosi, really testing out the combinations uh, for the various uh, treatments um, uh, available to us. So, uh, we really look forward to seeing these results, and no question we're going to find a good combination here to improve on the already fairly good results with um, um, uh, the agents that uh, we have for primary therapy, but uh, certainly need a lot more in the BCG unresponsive space. Um, so here's uh, what has been presented already, This is or um, published. This is, again, in the BCG unresponsive uh, space uh, with one of the trials being uh, BCG naive. So currently we do have sequential gem, uh, gemcitabine docetaxel as our sort of rescue therapy. Uh, this is uh, results from retrospective studies showing approximately 58% recurrence-free survival at two years. Um, and uh, for CIS with or without papillary disease is about 50% recurrence-free survival uh, at uh, uh, two years. So currently, if patients are not going on trial, this is sort of our rescue therapy if, if uh, available. Um, the other one that has been uh, getting a lot of attention is this IL-15 super agonist. It was a phase 2-3 uh, study, otherwise known as QUILT. Um, uh, this is, a, 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 a again, in the same space of the BCG unresponsive disease with uh, CR rates of 71%. Um, so we look forward to that coming on um, to the market as well. And we do have a fairly recently approved therapy at Stiligen or natafaragine feridenovac as a viral gene transfer uh, phase three trial based on, on this uh, 151 patients with CR rates at three months of 59%. Again, we do see a drop off uh, at one year, but nevertheless, this is very well approved, a very well tolerated and approved therapy and just recently became available as an early access program to several uh, centers around the country. So we actually have this in our clinics now at USC, and we're beginning to use uh, at Silidrin. The advantage is it's a one-time treatment for three months, so you get four treatments uh, per year, uh, so very, very well tolerated. And then just at the bottom here, we have uh, BCG uh, versus Gemdosi. This is uh, in BCG-naive patients in a trial called the BRIDGE trial. Uh, that Max Cates from uh, Johns Hopkins is leading. It's a cooperative group trial and there were many of us are participating in. So we're going to see whether Gemdosi can be brought up front as the uh, induction induction therapy. So busy slide, but um, uh, just wanted to highlight this as well. This is uh, uh, Cretostimogene Granadinorepvec. I think I said that right. Or otherwise known as CG0070. Uh, this is an uh, oncolytic adenovirus. Uh, it's, it's a vaccine essentially engineered to produce uh, a GMCSF and replicate the um, in selectively tumor cells that are exhibiting or mutated in deficient RB pathway, which is present in many bladder cancer cells. Uh, completely new mechanism. There's been some great uh, preliminary data from the phase two uh, core one trial uh, with the CG plus Pembro in high risk BCG unresponsive uh, uh, non muscle invasive bladder cancer with CIS with CR rates up to 85%. Again, also very well tolerated. Okay, so let's move on to another uh, sort of delivery mechanism and a, a very exciting new therapy. Um, so this is uh, otherwise affectionately known as the, the pretzel. This is the TAR-200 program in the Sunrise Trials. Uh, there's Sunrise 1 through 4 currently with another one, Sunrise 5, opening. Uh, so this is a uh, delivery mechanism uh, enables a sustained release of gemcitabine into the bladder, uh, increases the dwell time. 
Uh, many of you have, have seen sort of short videos of this. This is uh, placed in the clinic, in the bladder. Uh, the device uh, floats in the bladder as the size of two quarters, and it, it eludes gemcitabine over a period of time. In this case, would be three weeks. Uh, so this was the Sunrise 2 trial. I presented this at the AUA um, in May, and there was updated results presented um, by Andrea Necki uh, at, at ESMO just recently. So the one that was being presented is just the court, uh, cohort 2, the TAR-200 alone. 80 patients supposed to be in this trial, uh, primary endpoint being overall CR rate. Uh, as you can see, in, there was a cohort 1 with citrilumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, uh, a cohort 3, which was citrilumab alone. And these two were closed once we saw the results of cohort two um, uh, being so so good. And uh, this is uh, um, the uh, presentation at, at ESMO. You can see that uh, 23 patients uh, presented uh, CR rates of 76.7%. If it was investigated and uh, uh, assessed, it was 80%. These are not numbers we're used to in, in non-Muslim invasive bladder cancer in the BCGN responsive space. So uh, importantly, uh, many of these were sustained. We have about six patients right now who are over a year uh, in treatment. I have several of those patients. Uh, this device is very, very well tolerated uh, in the in the bladder. So we're, we're very excited about the various um, Sunrise trials here and, and uh, making this part of our armamentarium in the treatment of a disease across the spectrum of disease states. So I'll highlight another one. Sunrise 3 is going head-to-head -head with BCG uh, in BCG-naive high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, the key eligibility criteria is the same as uh, uh, for all patients receiving BCG, but bas basically group A gets TAR-200 uh, alone plus citrilumab. Uh, group B gets BCG, and then group C gets TAR-200 uh, alone. Uh, so we'll see, again, this is another one of those trials that has gone head to head with BCG so that uh, particularly in this era of BCG shortage, uh, we have other uh, treatment options available uh, to us. Um, this is a hot topic as well, FGFR3, uh, particularly mutations that are frequently observed in bladder cancer. You can see they're actually expressed throughout the spectrum of disease from non-muscle invasive to metastatic disease and particularly in the upper tract uh, where mutation rates uh, tend to be uh, much higher. Um, but these FGFR3 inhibitors are now available, and uh, they're effective across the disease spectrum from low-grade disease, where we see actually increased expression, all the way to metastatic disease, uh, where we uh, lose some of these uh, uh, mutations that are, that are present. So uh, th this has been the subject of several trials. This is the THOR2 trial, which is using oral ertafitinib, which is an FGFR3 inhibitor uh, versus intravesical chemotherapy. Again, in the BCG unresponsive high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, again, multiple cohorts um, in this. It was papillary tumor, papillary plus with or without CIS. Um, and then there was a cohort three, which it was interesting, which was giving an oral medication to patients with recurrent uh, low-grade TA tumors uh, 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 or the intermediate-risk AUA uh, uh, intermediate-risk patients. Uh, so you can see that the uh, curve sort of separating at ertafitinib did far better than the chemotherapy uh, for high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And then the cohort three, uh, again, was just an exploratory cohort. These are low-grade tumors. And you can see there was CR in six of eight patients. And by CR, I mean, we had to leave a uh, marker lesion behind and uh, we gave the oral ertafitinib. Then we would look in at six months, I'm sorry, six weeks and then three months. And these lesions were literally disappearing. We have a a great picture of this. Uh, so we know this is highly effective even in low-grade uh, uh, tumors. So these drugs have a lot of side effects, and uh, it only makes sense to move from oral therapy, systemic therapy in, in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, to uh, sustained delivery inside the bladder, and that's exactly what's happening. So TAR-210 is, is another one of those uh, pretzel uh, devices that now has nip inside the pretzel, um, and that uh, cohort one, again, in this would be the high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients or BCG experience, and cohort three would be that intermediate-risk um, patients with recurrent low-grade only TA or T1 uh, disease. Uh, you're not going to see low-grade T1, but essentially low-grade TA. There are lots of these patients around who keep forming these tumors. It gets really frustrating for both patients and providers to keep taking the patient back to the operating room uh, for the TRBT. So uh, this was a phase one, essentially, because this is a novel delivery mechanism with a, uh, a drug inside the pretzel, 
and uh, uh, this is being tested. And I can tell you that already the, the results are, are pretty spectacular, actually. Uh, we're seeing recurrence-free rates of 82%. Uh, the two, uh, these are the two different sort of, uh, doses and we're seeing that essentially the same response. Uh, so we have very, very high, uh, CR rates, uh, 87% in FGFR3 altered intermediate risk patients. The reason you're seeing these high CR rates here with the low grade tumors is because the FGFR3 uh, um, mutation, uh, is seen far more often in, in low grade tumors. So they're highly, highly effective. And now you, so you're delivering the medication directly in, in the bladder, significantly reducing the side effect profile uh, of, the, of the drug. And this is, again, very well tolerated. And this one is a three-month formulation. So you put this drug uh, device in the bladder, uh, and it stays there for three months. So again, uh, super exciting. You can see the uh, treatment-related uh, adverse uh, uh, events here. Very, very few. We're all very used to these irritated wetting symptoms that that we see with any medication uh, or even with uh, just recent surgery. So uh, very few uh, serious adverse events here. So a little bit about uh, muscle-invasive bladder cancer now, uh, recent advances. And most of the advances have to do with perioperative management and neoadjuvant therapy. Again, there's another Sunrise trial here. It's a phase three trial uh, testing citrolimab, again, a PD-1 inhibitor. Uh, plus the TAR-200 device. Again, that's gemcitabine within that pretzel device every three weeks for the first 18 weeks. And testing it out with standard of care chemoradiation therapy for muscle-invasive bladder cancer. So this is two very different treatments uh, options uh, for bladder preservation for muscle-invasive bladder cancer. This is accruing very well globally. Uh, I have several patients on this trial and again, very well tolerated. Um, so this is essentially the same treatment as, as we're doing in some of the other, uh, other trials. So we look forward to seeing these results and seeing if, if this um, has activity in muscle-invasive bladder cancer as well. What about trimodality therapy? Of course, that's an established uh, treatment modality. Uh, we have uh, another trial seeing whether the addition of pembrolizumab to this uh, usual uh, chemoradiation therapy actually makes, it, makes a difference. Um, simple study design here. Now uh, you're going to add uh, Pembro versus uh, placebo and then uh, do the assessments along the way to see whether uh, the uh, addition of a, uh, a checkpoint inhibitor actually uh, helps with chemoradiation. We, we hope to see improvement in, in uh, uh, bladder preservation uh, trials as well. What about neoadjuvant uh, chemo or immunotherapy? Uh, there's a lot of activity there, as you can imagine. Uh, there's, uh, there's a big presentation at ESMO really kind of shifting our uh, entire uh, uh, focus of adjuvant, uh, uh, neoadjuvant sort of concepts uh, because of the metastatic uh, disease uh, response to EV Pembro. But nevertheless, these uh, 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 trials are ongoing. These are cis-eligible patients, uh, Energize as Gemsis Nevo, Niagara as Gemsis Derva, uh, we have Keynote 866, Gemsys Pembro, uh, and then, of course, the Keynote uh, uh, B15, EV304, is Pembro EV in the neoadjuvant space. So, uh, again, we're, we're going to see improvements um, with uh, CR rates and seeing whether we can actually preserve some bladders uh, following neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, there's uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy as well. Uh, there is a Keynote, uh, again, I mentioned that the... Uh, uh, Pembro. This is for cis ineligible patients. Now we have the uh, EV Pembro um, because that, that doesn't really matter. That we were seeing similar responses in metastatic disease with EV Pembro. Uh, we have the Volga trial, which is uh, Durva plus uh, Tremolimumab and EV. And then there's another Sunrise trial uh, here, the Phase two, which is TAR 200 plus uh, Citrolimab uh, in cis ineligible uh, patients. So we'll see uh, what this all uh, shakes out, but um, obviously we're going to see uh, some of these agents move on into the earlier space and then neoadjuvant. And then the next question is going to be, do we need to actually take out these bladders or do uh, some kind of consolidation uh, therapy uh, for, for these patients who have uh, CR? Uh, what about adjuvant trials? There are, there are three major adjuvant trials uh, that have been recently been uh, uh, either presented or, or completed. So the Invigorate 010 uh, was the first one to complete and, and get published. This was atezolizumab uh, versus observation. The primary disease endpoint was uh, disease-free survival. 
Um, and unfortunately, this did not meet the DFS primary endpoint. Uh, so we thought with this that adjuvant therapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors may not be the way. However, Checkmate 274 came out. Uh, very, very similar design, Nevo versus placebo, the primary endpoint being the same. And this one actually showed a major difference. I'll, I'll show you the uh, curve here. But this did get FDA approved as our current go-to for patients who have um, a residual disease following cystectomy, uh, following neoadjuvant chemotherapy, or if they're a cis-ineligible. Now, the ambassador trial was uh, closed a little bit early uh, once Checkmate 274 resulted, and that was Pembro versus observation with co-primary endpoints of DFS and OS. And uh, primer, uh, the uh, primary endpoint has been met, and there's uh, uh, excitement about the, seeing the final results here. So uh, we may have two approved therapies pretty soon in the adjuvant uh, uh, therapy uh, uh, armamentarium here. So this was Checkmate 274. This is, again, the, the approved therapy. Um, these are patients with high-risk muscle invasive bladder cancer or upper tract disease um, who underwent cystectomy, and they either had YPT2 to YPT4 uh, uh, following neoadjuvant chemotherapy or node-positive disease, or they had PT3 or 4 uh, without uh, uh, prior neoadjuvant, but they were uh, not cis-eligible. Uh, so high-risk patient population here, basically they get stratified, get either Nevo or placebo for a year, um, and and uh, um, th these are the updated uh, DFS results that was fairly recently um, um, uh, presented by uh, Matt Galski. So this is the uh, intent to treat population. You can see that there's a separation of the curves going out to five years. Uh, we still don't have the OS data, but we do have uh, disease-free uh, survival here being uh, significantly different. Again, approved in the U.S. for adjuvant therapy. Um, uh, and uh, we're currently using this as our go-to. So here's your treatment algorithm. Uh, you get your uh, patient evaluation, uh, whether they're a radical cystectomy candidate, if they're not willing, uh, or want to have bladder preservation. TMT is our current um, uh, approved therapy, uh, clinical trials plus minus IO. And then, of course, all the uh, various uh, combinations that, that we talked about here. Again, we're really excited to see uh, results of perioperative EV in this space, and Fortimavisotin, uh, uh, along with uh, Pembro, that we've seen spectacular results of in uh, metastatic disease uh, that uh, we'll hear about a little bit later. So here's a patient, Jonathan, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. His ECOG performance status is, is 1, papillary disease. He has FGFR alterations, BCG unresponsive, undergoes repeat TORBT, and has no residual disease. Uh, what options does he, does he have? So again, he's he sort of... Uh, not really that old, but his ECOG status is one, papillary disease, um, BCG unresponsive, and currently has had his uh, disease uh, resected. So that was, that was great, Sia. Uh, that was a true uh, tour de force covering everything, starting from NMIBC to bladder sparing, BCG naive, unresponsive, going into neoadjuvant and even adjuvant in, in, in a very short period of time. This particular case is, is I think, is, is instructive because it speaks to the notion now about checking a biomarker, looking at tissue, and you can do this through tissue or urine-based testing for FGR, uh, FGFR alterations. So this whole notion around biomarker and precision-based therapy. And then, as you really nicely went over, all these different opportunities in BCG unresponsive, even with traditional generic intravesical chemotherapies, new delivery device systems that improve dwell time, whether it's with gemcitabine or ertafitinib, uh, is, is very interesting to, for urologists. So um, let me think about this case, um, you know, Sia, and also a guru, because several questions have popped up. If you're going to be thinking about a patient here for a clinical trial, um, or if you don't have a clinical trial, so this patient, and several questions about this notion around managing immune-related adverse events, especially for the urologist. And how does the uro-oncologist work better, particularly not only in, in um, community, but even in the academic setting? So let me throw this back to you, Sia. In this particular case, uh, what, what's the conversation you're having with this patient right now? And let's assume you have the clinical trials available uh, at one insert and another one you don't. 
Yeah, thanks, Dale. So, so this patient, uh, you know, certainly we don't want to go to cystectomy. He still has papillary disease. It doesn't really uh, mention whether it's T1 or not. I think there's a lot of nuances here. Uh, if the patient had high-grade TA, is actually progressing to T1. is still non-muscle invasive, but it's, it's certainly very high risk. Uh, even with an ECOG-1, I think I would recommend a cystectomy in that patient if they're progressing. Now, presumably, this patient is not progressing, has FGFR alteration, uh, and is uh, presenting with another papillary tumor that, that's high-grade TA. Uh, so now currently has no residual disease. In the past, we've really uh, concentrated on patients with CIS, with or without papillary disease. Uh, presumably, this patient only has papillary disease that's been resected. So again, if they're not part of a clinical trial or they're not eligible for it, I think our go-to would be gemcitabine docetaxel. Um, that, that would be the combination therapy. But, but we do have trials available now. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Extiladrin has been uh, uh, approved for CIS plus minus papillary disease. You know, if we had that in the past, we could certainly use that. Um, or uh, now with uh, Sunrise 5 uh, opening soon, I think there will be a cohort for this patient uh, to put in the pretzel uh, device for, for this patient as well with no uh, residual uh, t- tumor left uh, behind. So we do have some options. In terms of the ertafitinib, um, again, it's early uh, in development, and uh, we're going to have trials uh, coming soon that are going to address exactly this. Uh, if they have FGFR alterations, I think it's a, it's a good way to target that uh, early on so that we have the rest of our treatments available to us later. So um, urologists generally, we like localized-based therapy. We're comfortable with intravesical devices. We're comfortable with catheterization and putting a lot of different things into the bladder. But you, you've shown, you know, very nicely that IO, which started in 2016, and we've had, you know, this an, an enormous amount of wonderful trial data. Guru, so now that we see IO uh, checkpoint inhibitor indications in, in metastatic disease, you're going to get into that in your talk, but Sia showed us in clearly now in adjuvant setting, we have it in uh, refractory CIS. We're probably going to have it as well in neoadjuvant setting. Clearly, it's being looked at in um, bladder sparing. The question is, and given your background, how do we get uro-oncologists who are dedicated to this comfortable with immune-related adverse events? Right. So immune checkpoint inhibitors are uh, have been a great advance, but it's important to remember that they can have significant toxicities. And although most of the toxicities are manageable uh, with vigilance and patient education, uh, it's important to remember that some of these toxicities can be potentially life-threatening. So most immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicities like the colitis, uh, pneumonitis, hepatitis, you can get any of these itises, um, which are mostly manageable with uh, vigilance. But remember that the rare neurologic and cardiac toxicities can be potentially life-threatening. So really important to be vigilant. Well, and the good news is, is that the grade three fours are 15% or less, and 85% of patients don't get. Just a quick uh, a- additional I- interest here, especially for urologists, is IO will almost invariably end up being administered not only intravenously, but also subcutaneously. And you can read through the details here. Um, the CREST trial is using in the BCG uh, naive large trial, global, completely accrued, various uh, uh, um, arms, as Sia showed you, in similar to the Potomac trial, but it's a sub-Q administration. And then recent positive um, press release on the top line on nivolumab in, in, in metastatic renal cancer. So the notion about a subcutaneous formulation could be very impactful through in the throughput of our clinics, hospital-based, clinic-based, at advantages for certain practices and even for for patients, particularly geographical issues, uh, and and the, I think with a, the overarching theme of more and more folks staying and getting their care at home, so worth keeping an eye on that. Again, Beacon has great opportunity for our patients to come to clinical trials. Uh, you know, we have more clinical trials than we have really high quality clinical trial sites which is something that we continue to want to work with our academic leadership and get these clinical trial sites uh, developed uh, with rigor within the community so we can answer a lot of these questions. Um, the MDT, I'm going to, for purposes of time, I'm just going to kind of uh, maybe just throw this back over to uh, both of you gentlemen. 
what have been your learnings, um, you know, over time, you know, you're in California, you're in Florida, um, academic community, what are some of the tricks, tips, pearls to making the MDT work more, work better? What, what have you learned over time? Let me see, let me start with you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in the past, it used to be we manage non-muscle invasive, muscle invasive bladder cancer, and there's this sharp divide, you know, metastatic and adjuvant therapies go to medical oncology. I think in the academic sort of bladder world, there's a lot of mixing and matching now because uh, medical oncologists are treating non-muscle invasive bladder cancer with uh, systemic therapies, uh, particularly checkpoint, and vice versa. We're using some systemic agents now, whether in the bladder or oral therapy uh, for, for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. There's got to be a discussion back and forth. You have to develop a relationship uh, with your medical oncologist have this close sort of back and forth because the patients are literally going back and forth with some of these trials. Uh, so I'm, I'm finding that our medical oncologists are becoming more and more familiar with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and vice versa. We are becoming more familiar with sort of the locally advanced and metastatic disease because we are sometimes the stakeholders and, and decision makers in the beginning of whether or not a patient is a candidate for uh, systemic therapy, uh, radical cystectomy, or, or bladder preservation. Uh, so I think learning sort of the whole spectrum of disease for both specialties is really important. Yeah, I mean, everything that you presented, and I know Guru is going to present now, it's in, it's in the guidelines. So patients are smart. They're going onto websites such as Beacon, and they're getting trusted information. For me, what I've seen is I, I've got my medical specialist, my medical oncologist, Radonc, Nuke Meds now. We're all on speed dial. Yeah. And then we text, you know, all throughout the day. And, yeah. and, and, and then the other issue for me I've noticed is the improvement in, in tumor boards and virtual tumor boards and or hybrid in-person virtual, but Guru, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that one of the things, I think as you said, communication is the key to be on speed dial, as you say, with your radiation oncologist, the urologist, um, the pathologist, I think all of them are important. Uh, it's not always that we can get all of these people into the same clinic uh, at the same time. It happens sometimes. Um, but I think the communication is the key so that we are all on the same page and we can get that treatment delivered promptly. Okay. Um, fantastic. I, I think we covered this. Um, I think you can just kind of read through this, but what I find particularly exciting is this wonderful discussion about how do we really sequence these patients uh, and that more and more data is coming forward, recognizing that many of our patients are not currently getting uh, evidence-based therapy goes back to that underrepresentation and how we can do better. SUO, I'm preaching to the choir of people who attend this meeting, but this is how we need to really sort of percolate a lot of this information out into the community. So North Star is always, you know, patient care. So with that, let me uh, turn it over to you, Guru. Thank you, Neil. So, so now we will discuss uh, metastatic urothelial carcinoma. And as you may have heard, there have been significant advances and new data presented over the last month. So the current standard in most patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma is based on this trial, the Javelin Bladder 100 trial, in which uh, patients who had stable or responding disease after four to six cycles of platinum-based combination chemotherapy received Avilumab or uh, best supportive care. And as you can see, maintenance Avilumab soon after the chemotherapy improved survival up to a median of close to two years with um, maintenance Avilumab. You also see the PFS around five and a half months. Now, one of the things that's become clear with this paradigm of maintenance Avilumab after chemotherapy in sequence is that in the real world, uh, maybe a minority of patients are receiving Avilumab just because uh, all of these patients are not going to have stable or responding disease or may um, fall off because of performance status or comorbidities. Nevertheless, that is um, a standard established based on that phase three trial. Now, what we have done uh, a few years back is combine various PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors with platinum-based combination chemotherapy in the first-line setting. And these are the two trials that have been done before, the Invigor 130 and Keno 361. Unfortunately, both of these trials were, at the end of the day, negative. They did not improve survival. Therefore, chemoimmunotherapy uh, did not move into the first-line paradigm based on these two um, trials. However, there was a ray of hope in these two trials. So both of these two trials uh, allowed either cisplatin or carboplatin as the backbone chemotherapy. So when they looked at these two trials and looked at the sub-analyses, it looked like the cisplatin backbone was playing better 
combining better with the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor, you can see the PFS uh, looking a bit better with the cisplatin backbone in both of these trials. So this provides the backdrop for this trial here, Checkmate 901, which was presented at the ESMO conference uh, last month in uh, Madrid. So this trial looked at specifically cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So only cisplatin-eligible patients, phase three trial, which compared gemcitabine cisplatin up to six cycles versus gemcitabine cisplatin up to six cycles, combined with nivolumab, followed by continuation of nivolumab. And nivolumab was given up to a period of two years, uh, while the cisplatin gemcitabine, of course, stopped at a maximum of six cycles. So the co-primary endpoints for overall survival and progression-free survival uh, in this trial. So uh, this, um, of course, is the first time that a chemo-IO combination improved outcomes. So this is showing you that the cisplatin gemcitabine nivolumab combination improved overall survival hazard ratio 0.78, median OS 21.7 months. And also, <clears throat> this combination improved progression-free survival with a hazard ratio 0.72. Now, what you see is interesting there with the shape of the curve is that the median PFS was somewhat similar, and that's because you see the PFS curves are separating around the six-month time point. Uh, and, and, but there is clearly a separation that persists uh, with time, as you can see. So really, an improvement in both OS and PFS for the first time with the chemo-IO combination, GEMS-CIS-NEVO, only in the cisplatin-based uh, patient uh, population. Now, one of the most interesting findings in this trial is the improvement in uh, response rate, especially complete response rate. You see the overall uh, objective response rate improving from around the 43% range to the 58% range. But what's more exciting is that the complete response rate nearly doubling to around 22%. And the most exciting feature is at the bottom uh, right there. So the duration of complete remission more than three years, the median duration of 37.1 months, which is really exciting and suggests that maybe we are curing many of these patients who achieve a complete remission. Remember, historically, cisplatin-based combination chemotherapy has been known to be the only potentially curative therapy. So this uh, complete remission rate is really exciting uh, based on this data. Now, coming to toxicities with this combination, as you can expect, when you combine a PD-1 inhibitor with cisplatin-based chemotherapy. You can expect some increase in toxicities, uh, some immune checkpoint inhibitor-related toxicities, as well as the toxicities of the cisplatin gemcitabine. So as you can see there, but uh, what was seen with the toxicity profile is that nothing prohibitive came out. So essentially, the toxicities of chemotherapy and toxicities of the nivolumab uh, are seen there in the chemo-IO combination arm. And there was actually only uh, one uh, death from the treatment in both of these arms. So really a tolerable regimen with mostly manageable toxicities consistent with the chemo and the nivolumab uh, toxicities. Now there is one other chemo IO trial still ongoing. This is the Nile trial. This is the only one that actually looked at a PDL1 and CTLF4 inhibitor combination with platinum-based chemotherapy as the backbone. So this is an interesting trial. Uh, it's still ongoing, so we need to wait for the data to see uh, what um, uh, happens with this trial. Now, the other, of course, very exciting regimen out there is the combination of enfortomivodotin, the antibody drug conjugate that targets nectin-4 and has a tubulin antagonist uh, payload. So this regimen, the EV plus pembrolizumab regimen, is already out there, approved in the U.S. based on uh, an accelerated approval based on this phase 1b and phase 2 data, where you see a response rate uh, close to 70%, and the duration of response of approximately two years. So based on the response rate and the duration of response, the FDA has approved this regimen in the first-line cisplatin ineligible disease space uh, for these patients. So we have been using this for the uh, past few months now uh, for some of these patients in this space. Now, of course, what's even more exciting is data from this EV302 trial. This is a phase three trial that enrolled both cisplatin eligible and cisplatin ineligible patients, so all comers, first line uh, metastatic disease. And as you can see there, compared EV plus pembrolizumab versus gemcitabine plus platinum. 
And one of the key things to remember is that the gem platinum was given up to uh, six cycles. Uh, somewhere after the halfway point, they amended the protocol to allow maintenance um, uh, checkpoint inhibition in the standard arm. Now the experimental arm, the pembrolizumab was given up to a period of two years, while EV did not have uh, a uh, upper limit on the number of uh, cycles that could be given. And the co-primary endpoints are overall survival and progression-free survival. So this is the curve that led to a standing ovation at the ESMO Congress uh, last month. So this, as you can see, for the first time, EV pembrolizumab uh, yielding a median survival crossing two years, in fact, crossing two and a half years, 31.5 months, near uh, doubling essentially of the median survival compared with the gemcitabine platinum arm. So hazard ratios are robust, 0.47. Uh, and also, progression-free survival also was extended with a very robust hazard ratio of uh, 0.45. You see a near doubling of PFS, again, from approximately six months going to 12 months for EV pembrolizumab. So these data really are expected to be practice uh, changing. This is a huge advance for the field. Uh, we've never seen a survival like this or a PFS like this in a first-line uh, trial population. Now, when you look at the objective response rate uh, in this trial, again, that also was impressive. As you, uh, you can see, the objective response rate improving from around 44% with the chemo arm to 68% approximately for the EV pembro arm. And look at that complete response rate, 29% approximately complete response for EV pembrolizumab is also uh, very impressive. Now, the duration of uh, response has not been reached in the experimental arm. So really, we need to wait and see what those durations look like. So uh, really, uh, very impressive data for all of these endpoints with EV pembrolizumab in an all-comer first-line population. Now, this is the toxicity slide for EV pembrolizumab uh, versus gemcitabine platinum. As you can expect, um, the toxicities seen with EV pembro include those of EV and pembrolizumab. Uh, remember the skin rash, and the neuropathy from uh, EV, the skin rash can be quite early, so we have to be, again, very, very vigilant with this drug. Um, but these um, toxicities are consistent with what was seen in the previous Phase 1B and Phase 2 trials, so nothing uh, new here compared to what we've seen before, but clearly um, the to toxicities um, have to be, um, uh, have to be uh, monitored and you have to be vigilant along with your patient education when you're giving patients these drugs. One of the key things is that in this trial, the EV pembrolizumab combination was given for a median of 12 cycles. So that's actually uh, a lot of cycles that could be de delivered in this trial. So that I found interesting, actually. So are there other ADCs um, uh, that we have? So uh, one of the class of ADCs that is emerging is ADCs targeting HER2. Uh, as you can see, trastuzumab, derexican uh, look very interesting for the response rate of close to 40% in HER2 expressing patients, even higher in HER2 3-plus expressing patients. This is the pan-tumor basket trial with this drug, so we need to wait and see. Potentially, this drug could get um, uh, an accelerated approval based on this uh, these data, so we need to wait and see. Desitimab, vedotin is another HER2 targeting ADC that look very interesting. Uh, in combination with uh, a PD-1 inhibitor and is actually already in phase three uh, a trial looking at uh, comparing this combination uh, with gemcitabine platinum. Now down there you see sacetizumab go with TCAN. So this is a TROP2 targeting ADC with a topoisomerase 1 payload, SN38. This drug is of course uh, already approved by the US FDA. This is accelerated approval based on the response rate of around 28% uh, with a median duration of response around eight months. So this drug is a great addition to the therapeutic armamentarium because this payload does not have the neurotoxicity which we see with some of the other drugs we have out there. So this is clearly uh, a great addition to the armamentarium and is approved in the post-platinum and PD-1, L1 inhibitor space. Now, one of the questions that arises is with all of these data for um, early PD-1, PD-L1 inhibition in the adjuvant space, Potentially, we will have a neoadjuvant chemo IO EV Pembro combination also emerging over the next few years. Now, what impact does this have on these first line regimens, the cis gem, nevo, 
EV femoral if patients have already received uh, adjuvant nivolumab, let's say. So this needs to be hashed out. We don't quite know how to deal with this. Um, of course, if a patient has been uh, uh, discontinued from nivolumab for a significant immune event, that's a different story. You don't want to expose such a patient to an immune checkpoint inhibitor again if the patient had a really serious immune uh, adverse event. But um, whether progression on the adjuvant therapy versus after the adjuvant therapy is complete, if that makes a difference to whether you would do EV, pembro, gemcis, nevo or not, uh, that remains to be seen and remains to be studied further. Now, uh, one other class of drugs that's out there is uh, eridafitinib. Eridafitinib is a pan-FGFR inhibitor uh, oral uh, TKI. And uh, this, as you know, is an important agent for this class, um, uh, this group of patients that have the FGFR3, FGFR2 activating mutations or fusions, which is approximately 15% of patients. And so we should always look for this uh, mutation or fusion in advanced disease patients. Now, eridafitinib is approved based on a non-randomized phase two trial in post-platinum patients with uh, metastatic disease based on this uh, response rate of approximately 40% uh, and the duration of response. Now, however, we don't, we did not have a phase three trial yet that led to that, uh, that initial accelerated approval. So now we have data from the THAR trial shown here. This is a phase three trial that compared eridafitinib versus chemotherapy in post-PD-1 L1 inhibitor treated patients and had a second comparison of eridafertinib versus pembrolizumab in post-chemo patients in the second-line setting. So earlier at ASCO this year, this comparison was shown for eridafertinib versus chemotherapy in post-PD-1 L1 inhibitor treated patients. And as you can see, this trial was stopped early based on the interim analysis showing an improvement in survival to close to uh, a year with eridafitinib compared to chemotherapy. And also there was an improvement in progression-free survival. The objective response rate was consistent with what's been seen in the previous phase two trial, which approximately 45% uh, um, response rate. So really, these data uh, are expected to hopefully get eridafitinib into the full approval space, so we need to wait and see. Now, the other comparison that was um, presented a little bit later at ESMO last month was this comparison of eridafitinib versus pembrolizumab in the THAR trial, the second comparison, in post-chemo patients. This was interesting because what this comparison showed is that the survival was not extended by eridafitinib compared to pembrolizumab. Remember, this is all FGFR3, FGFR2 activating alterations. Uh, the interesting finding was that the response rate was clearly higher for eridafitinib um, and the PFS was higher. However, the duration of response with pembrolizumab uh, was much longer. Uh, and also, interestingly, you see that pembrolizumab is actually active in this group of patients, and there, was, there were a lot of doubts uh, about uh, whether PD-1 inhibitors are, uh, retain their activity in this population, but clearly it looks like the response is retained at around 21% for pembrolizumab uh, in this patient population. Now, eridafitinib has... Uh, uh, been known, of course, being a pan-FTFR inhibitor, it's a TKI. Uh, it does have toxicities. Um, we know the hyperphosphatemia is uh, a class effect. And uh, as you might know, in the trials, the erdafitinib of advanced disease trials, the erdafitinib was uh, escalated from 8 milligram daily to 9 milligram daily if, if hyperphosphatemia was not achieved 5.5 uh, by around two weeks. So that really, um, they were trying to guide the dosing based on the pharmacodynamics of this drug. So hyperphosphatemia is important, a low phosphate diet is important, and addressing severe hyperphosphatemia is important with phosphate binders. The eye toxicities are important. We had, as oncologists, we're not used to eye toxicities that much, especially because this one is a posterior eye toxicity. This is a retinal toxicity. It can cause a central vision defect. So really, uh, you have to get your ophthalmologist on board and ophthalmology exams uh, monthly for the first uh, um, uh, four months and then go out to every three months. So really have to be vigilant about the eyes. Sometimes it's tough to get in to see an ophthalmologist. So I've used something called the Amsler's grid. It's a grid that you can print off and ask the patient to look at it and let you know if they see any distortion or waviness in the, in the grid, the lines of the grid. So that's an uh, important uh, tool you could use in the clinic yourself. 
course, stomatitis and diarrhea can be seen with this uh, agent. One of the things I will highlight is that despite these toxicities and the uh, dry skin and the nail changes, I will point out that these toxicities are manageable with vigilance and patient education. Uh, these are mostly not life-threatening toxicities, I will point out. So really manageable and a clearly a nice addition to the therapeutic armamentarium uh, for this 15% uh, group of advanced disease patients who have these alterations. So really the take-home uh, point from um, this uh, discussion of metastatic disease is that while at the moment the javelin paradigm uh, is established for most first-line disease patients, the gemcitabine platinum for four to six cycles, followed by maintenance avalimab in patients who are responding or stable, the fact is that in the real world, uh, it's difficult to get to avalimab because of a number of reasons, progressive disease or comorbidities. So really these upfront, more aggressive combinations, EV, Pembro, uh, Gemsys, Nevo for cisplatin eligible patients, uh, I think are going to be um, a practice changing based on the recent data. We need to, of course, wait and see what the regulatory agencies say. Uh, these, both of these regimens produce high responses, early responses, the responses seem durable. So really, uh, I believe that these two regimens will uh, bring, a, bring a huge impact to the first-line space. I think there will remain a space for the javelin paradigm or maintenance avalimab in select patients who are not fit for aggressive combination therapies. But I think these two regimens are something to consider uh, in the near future, I think, while we await regulatory decision-making. Of course, remember that HER2 targeting ADCs are being investigated um, uh, vigorously, and I think they will also bring an advance in the near future. Sacetizumab govitecan is already out there. The TROP2 targeting ADCs is not a neurotoxic drug, so it's a great uh, addition to the armamentarium and uh, does seem to retain activity even after enfotumab beratin exposure. And going forward, we don't know the impact of adjuvant nivolumab or potentially neoadjuvant EV pembro chemo IO coming into the space. Uh, we don't know the impact of that on first-line uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor incorporating regimens like GEMSYS, NEVO, EV, PEMRO. So we need to study that further. Remember that despite all, this, all of these advances, we are not curing the vast majority of patients. So clinical trial accrual needs to be the uh, main focus and always think of clinical trial first uh, before you start thinking of the standard regimens out there you can use in the clinic. Thank you. Well, well, thank you, Guru. That was great. Uh, it, this is such cutting-edge material. Um, just a quick show of hands. It was, and, and anybody here attend ESMO? See some of these presentations? Okay, fantastic. I mean, the 901 has a New England paper. Vander Heiden is the first author. Um, the, the 302, the EB302, hasn't been published yet, but as Guru said, it got a standing ovation. So remarkably practice-changing antibody drug conjugates uh, for ADCs are, are here. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're mainstay now. And I think your oncologists need to be fully aware of that. Um, let's go to a case. And we've gotten some really good questions already that I'm going to ask you, Guru. And they're, they're kind of focusing around this ongoing controversy is the 901 you know, Nevo chemo versus uh, Pembro or IOEV, Pembro EV. So We'll get to that, but here's a, a 66-year-old, gross hematuria, has a bladder mass, gets a resection. Let's let's assume this is this is clearly T2 disease. He's got uh, adenopathy, retroperitoneal, pelvic, good, reasonable renal function, reasonable performance status. And here's the thing, you know, I'd love to hear some thoughts on this. Is mild neuropathy? Maybe you can comment on that, Guru. What you're doing now to assess for neuropathy at baseline moving forward. And these are kind of looking at some of the, what we've all, oftentimes called the Galski criteria. In addition to renal insufficiency, low uh, creatinine clearance or GFR, contraindications to, to chemotherapy con consistent with uh, hearing impairment and baseline neuropathy. Um, alterations, you know, IHC status, the PDL, et cetera, no FGR alterations for this patient. So given everything you just said, Guru, what would you have this patient now think about frontline metastatic urothelial cancer? Yeah, thank you, Neil. So again, clinical trial, if a clinical trial is available, but in the absence of a trial, the current standard for 
this patient. This patient seems to be cisplatin eligible, does have mild neuropathy as uh, shown there, but grade one neuropathy is not an absolute contraindication to cisplatin. Uh, the renal function is um, uh, 60 estimated GFR, so that makes this patient cisplatin eligible. So one, the javelin paradigm of cis, gem, or you can you can certainly use your favorite cisplatin-based combination, followed by maintenance avalimab. While that is the current standard, I think that what we're going to see in the near future is EV pembrolizumab or gemcis nivolumab in this space. Now, I think that they're both valid options. So the, the, the pros and cons are EV pembro clearly had a huge median survival, 31.5 months response rate, um, 29% uh, percent, uh, complete response rate. Uh, one thing that I was really impressed by with GEMSYS NEVO is that there's a finite duration of uh, GEMSYS up to six cycles, and then it's the nivolumab alone. So I, I do believe that the GEMSYS NEVO regimen offers, um, has a, will play a big role in select patients, especially someone like this with lymph node-only disease that we know historically is potentially curable with cisplatin-based combination. Uh, especially given that the finite duration of chemotherapy gives this patient, a, I think, a better quality of life when the nivolumab alone is ongoing, as opposed to the EV pembro regimen, while hi highly active and a huge advance for our field, uh, the EV is given was given until toxicities of progression, and the neuropathy is a significant toxicity with EV uh, cumulatively. And therefore, I believe that both of these regimens are options, and especially in a curable patient like this with lymph node-only disease, I would strongly consider GEMSYS NEVO as a valid option, and, and I would discuss both these options with the patient. So, well, yeah, so I, I appreciate that. I, I think it's going to be a great discussion of tumor boards, you know, com comparing and contrasting 302 and 901. These are provocative, really important studies. Um, but uh, questions are coming up on, on my pad here, but also they're, they're really, in, we see them here. So we talked already a little a, a bit about the importance of immune-related adverse events. I mean, there's you know, 25 different indications right now across multiple tumor types for pembrolizumab. Uh, so medical oncologists are very familiar with this. This is absolutely essential that your oncologists are familiar with this and not you know worried about uh, their ability to work together. Um, but let's go to the skin rash. And, you know, other than dermatologists, you know, medical oncologists, no one likes dealing with rash. But it's not that complicated. But you do see more rash with um, EV and you do see neuropathy. And some of the other ADCs, for example, SG, you can see uh, issues regarding diarrhea and anemia. So the questions I have for your, both of you is, you know, what's also popped up here is, you know, how are you educating patients on neuropathy and skin rash? And then a, a question that's also come in here is the use of erythropoietin for anemia. So, Guru, you want to take a first stab at that? Well, well the typical feature of the EV skin rash is it's very, very early, uh, usually within the first month. It can be as early as within a week, in fact. Uh, so, most of the rash is manageable with the holding the drug, uh, interrupting, or dose reductions. It's, however, a very small percentage can be life-threatening potentially. You know, Stevens-Johnson syndrome has been seen. And so the really key uh, thing there is patient education for patients to be able to reach you easily and um, be able to go to the ER if it's a significant rash in the middle of the night. Uh, but I can tell you that there's a long learning curve here, and we still are not great at catching a rash at the right point in time and treating the rash, but uh, uh, that has to be done. Uh, the ICI toxicity, pembrotoxicity, of course, can also be at any time. The median time to onset of immune events tends to be around two months, but it can be seen as early as a week to two weeks, so really, and even as late as beyond a year. So you have to always be vigilant. I think one other thing I wanted to point out, it's very interesting, you know, EV targets nectin-4, as, as we all know, and there's nectin-4 in the subcutaneous, in the in the skin, essentially, and there's some evidence, if I'm not wrong, Guru, um, that getting a rash may actually be representative of a better response uh, to, to EV. So, you know, educating the patients that this is not necessarily a bad thing, <laughs> uh, provided it's mild, and educating them ahead of time, I think is important. 
Well, I just think these are really important for all of us to recognize that as we get breakthroughs, we need to be very comfortable and knowledgeable with patient expectation, patient education, and managing these new adverse events of interest. So, um, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that we're getting into precision-based therapy right now, multiple new classes of a mechanism of action, and isn't that always the key, combining whether it's a, 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 a chemotherapy-based intravesical or systemic, but now FGFR, biomarker assessment, different m ways to deliver therapy with improved dwell times into the bladder, combining ADCs and um, uh, IO or even ADC or, or IO and chemo, neoadjuvant, adjuvant. This is where we're making such great advances. I mean, the, the fact that Guru showed data that patients are living out to three plus years where historically metastatic UC patients were looking at seven to 15 months, I think is quite remarkable. Uh, and really putting the, the burden on all of us who take care of these patients to make sure we're doing it in a multidisciplinary way. So I think we're pretty much at time. Thank you all very much for coming. Guru Sia, thank you so much. Great presentation. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Yes. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity has been developed in partnership with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XJV860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Merkin Company Incorporated.